Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. And uh, so glad you made it here today. If you give me about 20, 25 minutes on like Mother's Day and Father's Day, we like to keep it short, especially with Father's Day. We want to go eat some bacon and take a nap. Do we have any nappers here? I'm going to go home and take a two-hour nap, right, if that's possible. Um, but uh, I'm just going to spend just a few moments just sharing just a few thoughts that God's put in my heart. What I want to do is um, talk about how, how essential the role of the Father is. And I'm going to try to make a case for that, like a five-minute case. Can you give me five minutes about that? And then I'm going to probably backpedal a little bit, talk, I'm going to do a little cultural anthropology and talk about two cultural distractions when it comes to being a father, masculinity, all that kind of stuff. And give me three minutes for that, okay? And then, uh, and then I'm going to end on what God is like, and uh, I'm going to spend uh, hopefully most of my time on talking about what God is like. So this is about a 20, 25-minute message. Uh, before I do that, can you give it up for Trace, my sister who spoke last week on community? Come on, how many, how many of you were blessed by that? We were so blessed by that message, and I want to thank you, Trace. That was, that was absolutely perfect, and uh, you, I loved your outfit, too. How many loved your outfit? I just, man, I love it, um, but we love you, Trace. We have, don't we have a great teaching team? We got a great teaching team, and we're so blessed, so blessed. Um, I'm really excited over this summer. We have uh, our social kingdom. Tracy kicked it off last week. Uh, today, we're going to take a little break, talk about fathers. Next week, we're going to continue our social kingdom series. For about four or five weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to belong. We're going to be dealing with a lot of cultural things. We're going to talk about what the church is. I'm really excited for this sermon series. Social Kingdom is an umbrella series. We have three micro-series underneath Social Kingdom. So we'll spend four or five weeks talking about the church. And then probably mid-July. How many of you love July? Come on. We love July. In July, we're going to be dealing with marriage and singleness and the topic of sex. Okay. Awkward. Okay, I don't know how to get out of this. Help me, Lord. Um, and then uh, in August, leading up to September, we're going to be dealing with uh, family. I'm really excited about this um, Social Kingdom series. So, um, man, if you're on vacation, make sure you podcast it. Invite as many people as you can. I promise it's going to be something that everybody can get something out of it. And then in the fall, this is something I've been praying about the last four or five months. We're going to start a series probably mid-September on um, prayer. We spent about eight to ten weeks on prayer. So really excited about that. All right. Turn to neighbor, give him a high five one last time. Uh, I want to thank you all for your love and your support. My wife made a unilateral decision on Friday. She posted a picture without my permission. Without my permission. Thank you, Willow, for that picture. Um, and uh, yeah, we, uh, how do I say this? Uh, we're pregnant. And um, my wife is pregnant with another set of twins. And so that face, did you see that? My face, I promise I'm really excited now. But that was, yeah, that was, I was, I don't even know how to say that. I think I told Joel this. I was experiencing existential despair in that moment. 
I don't think we had slept for, I mean, you haven't slept for six months, baby. I hadn't slept for 15, like, days. And so, and then we found out that we had, <laughs> that's the difference between moms and dads. They never sleep. And I'm going to stop. Anyways, we're going we're gonna to lift up our dads here today. Um, but we want to thank you for all your support and all your love. And we're just so, we're so excited for um, seven kids. It's borderline, it's, border, it's borderline crazy town. It's crazy. Um, but again, thank you for uh, your prayers and support. Any, any, any guesses on the gender? How many of you think girls? Really? Okay. God, God bless you. Uh, what do you think about boy, girl, boy, girl? Okay. Thank you. That's what, that's what, that's what we're hoping for. Boy, girl. What about boys? All right. The devil is a liar. You shut your mouth. Put your hand down right now. All of you, raise your hand. You're dead to me for one week. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's funny. I've, have you, there's a moving company in our city. It's called All My Sons. I see it every day. And I'm just pleading with the Lord, let this not be a prophetic sign, right? Um, if it's sons, I'm out, guys. I'm out. I'm out. No, I'm not. We're, we're, what, whatever it is, whatever they are, we are... Um, excited. So thank you for all your prayers. We will, we will still be here, and we will be better pastors for it. Amen? All right. Uh, if you brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read just a few, few verses here. 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to begin in verse 14. Paul, he's writing to this cosmopolitan church. A lot of, a lot of issues. How many got issues? Right? Issues. We all got issues. So he's writing to address some of these issues, and this is what he says in verse 14. It's a little bit cryptic. I'll do my best to kind of tease out what he really means, but he says this. I do not write. Again, there's issues, and he's addressing a lot of stuff when it comes to boasting and arrogance and rivals and sexual disorder. He goes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides, one translation says teachers, countless guides and teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. How many of you believe we need more fathers? We need more spiritual fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 16, I urge you, therefore, then be imitators of me. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray? Father, we love you. And we thank you that your presence is here today. We just thank you that you are at work in, in our lives. And I just thank you for your strength to, to, to share in the next few minutes what you've put on my heart. Lord, I just ask that every dad here would be blessed. Lord, those maybe here today that are struggling with, with their dad. Maybe they had a bad dad. Maybe their dad did not picture or image um, our Father in heaven in an appropriate way, whatever it might be. Maybe some of us here today are struggling because we just recently lost our father. Whatever it is, maybe dad's here feeling inadequate as a dad. Whatever, whatever we're experiencing, Lord, I just ask you would come right now and you would encourage every father in this room. And Lord, every person that has lost a father or maybe is struggling in their relationship with their dad. Lord, we just thank you that you are in charge and we just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here with us. Lord, I just ask that we would leave this place transformed by your presence. And everyone said, amen. Hey, so I'm going to get into this really quick. I, this is a guy named Michael Chabon, 
and I've talked about him a lot um, before, and he talks extensively on fatherhood. And he, he gives, at least for me, a, a picture of what it means to be a dad. Now, let me just say this really quick. Um, being a dad, being a father, is not just something that you do, right? I, I think being a dad, yes, it's, it's teaching your kids how to, how to tie a tie, right? That's totally fine. It's teaching your kids, man, if dance is your thing, that's great. If you're totally into building things, right, you totally want to teach your kids how to, how to build stuff. If, you know, you're like me, you teach your kids how to, like, build a transmission and fix it, right, you know, like, and explain what a transmission is. I could totally do that after the end of this service for you guys. But whatever, you're, what, whatever, you, whatever you do, I mean, we all have subjective tastes as dads, and there are things that we pass down to our kids, whether that's a love of reading or maybe that's sports or maybe that's building things or whatever it is. Uh, that's a part of being a father, but being a father is much more than just doing something. Um, and according to Michael Chabon, as he writes on fatherhood, this is what he says. I love this. Fatherhood is an obligation that's more than your money. Can I get an amen to that? Right? It's more than your body. It's more than your time. He gets a little esoteric here, but just kind of, I'll try to do my best to explain him. He goes, being a father or fatherhood is a presence neither physical nor measurable by clocks. And he says this. His definition of fatherhood is it's open-ended. It's eternal. How many of you would agree with that? Being a father is eternal. It's invisible. And I love this last clause. He says, being a father is like the commitment of gravity. Everyone say gravity. It's like the commitment of gravity to the stars. What? I mean, what does that mean? One commentator, he's wrestling with this fatherhood being as um, commitment to the gravity of the stars. He says this, um, Fatherhood or being a dad is an unseen reality so foundational that without it, everything begins to fall apart. In fact, if you lose gravity, right, the stars, and Scott can, uh, in the front, can correct me if I'm wrong, but the stars themselves slip from the sky. That's highly charged metaphorical language. But we know that as gravity is utterly foundational for life, so is fatherhood. Fatherhood is much more than what you do and what you teach. And yes, teaching and doing things for your children is a part of fatherhood. But fatherhood is a foundational piece for life. In fact, I actually just, I, I did some research on gravity. And uh, I, I took a look at some what some scientists um, said about gravity and what if one futurist said about gravity. If we were to lose gravity for five minutes and one futurist said that matter itself would collapse back on itself. Again, this is kind of a hypothetical situation. So much so that if we lose gravity, um, the space-time continuum would be reduced to a soup of atoms and molecules, right? I think the obvious, I think we understand what gravity is, if gravity was somehow impeded or stopped, um, the Earth's atmosphere, rivers and lakes would be the first to float out or get pulled out into um, space. Um, we would be flying all around. It would affect our immune system. Um, one, one scientist said that if we lost gravity for five minutes, everything would be reduced to tumbleweeds and apocalyptic chaos. Um, why? Because gravity is absolutely foundational for life. So is fatherhood. Your presence, your loving presence as a father, as a dad, is absolutely essential for your kids. It's absolutely essential for your church. Can I get an amen? 
One, I, I read this a while ago. One kid was asked, I think it was maybe Sunday school, was asked, okay, I want you to draw a portrait of what God looks like. And so he was drawing, he's really contemplative. You can tell he was a little confused about how to draw what God looked like. And so after some time, the teacher came to him and, and was curious about what he was drawing. And he showed a picture to the teacher, and it was a picture of his father in a suit and tie. And this, this kid goes, this is how I see um, God. He's like my dad. That's illustrative of the profound influence that fathers, their presence, everyone say presence, their presence has on their kids. Like I remember growing up with, with my dad. Um, my dad would teach me all the time. He was a coach. I remember some of my earliest memories. Um, I, I was three, and he would take me to, he was a college basketball coach. He would take me to the gym while they practiced. I remember dribbling a basketball up and down the court. I just remember my dad being there. And maybe some of you don't have those memories, and maybe some of you have bad memories, or maybe your father wasn't what um, you expected him to be, but I, was, I had the luxury of having a father who was always present. I remember being at uh, different camps, my dad always being there. I remember my dad actually got in trouble with the elders a long time ago, not our present elders, but former elders, and uh, they didn't like the fact that my dad would go to my games on Saturday because they wanted, obviously, my dad, who served this church so faithfully. Can I get an amen to that? always served, was always going over to people's houses, always loving the church, always present. They didn't like the fact that my dad was showing up to my games on Saturday because they wanted him to be fully prepared for Sunday morning and preaching the word. And he was always fully prepared. But my dad said, homie, don't play that. It's my rendition, right? Like slow your row, right? Whatever. He, got, he went street on them and uh, they're no longer with us good guys, but I love the fact that my dad was always present. Being a father, is not, again, it's not just what you do, it's, um, it's your loving presence that matters the most. It's like the commitment, the radical commitment of gravity to the stars. It's hard to quantify that, right? It's hard to put into words the role of a good father has in our lives. Um, Russell Moore, um, he wrote this in Adopted for life in his book. This is excerpts of his uh, journey into adoption. And I want to read, this is a little bit long, but it, it describes in a very nuanced way the role of a father and a mother has on their kids. And I want you to feel this as, as I read this. He writes, the creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. It was my wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage, the orphanage staff led us down a hallway to the great two, uh, hallway to, to greet, excuse me, the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times uh, stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. So I stopped and pulled on my wife's elbow. Why is it, and he asked the question, why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and the punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth. 
the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, don't you love that name? Love that name. Now Benjamin stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same, but there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered in, in silence. On the last day of the trip, my wife and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria, my wife, shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the very first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I'd memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten out of it until now. Little Maxim's scream changed everything, more, I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was a moment in his recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. It was also the moment I became a father. In fact, if not in law, we both recognized that something was wrong because suddenly life as it had been seemed, as it been seemed terribly disordered. And up until that time, I had read the Abba Cry passages in Romans and Galatians the same way I had heard them preached as a gurgle of familiarity and and the spiritual equivalent of an infant cooing papa or daddy. Relational intimacy is surely present in these texts. Hence is Paul's choice of such a personal word as Abba. But this definitely isn't sentimental. After all, Scripture tells us that Jesus, his spirit, lets our hearts cry, Abba, Father. Jesus cries, Abba, Father, as he screams with loud cries and tears for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane. Similarly, the doctrine of adoption shows us that we groan with creation itself as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This cry is the scream of the crucified. It is the cry for one's father. Gives us a picture, right, of how profound the influence and the role of a father and a mother have in the life of their family and their children. In fact, this is what um, Paul's addressing. He's addressing this church in Corinth and their cosmopolitan church. Many of them, they're going to Vegas, they're doing cocaine, they're drug lord, I don't know, whatever. It's pretty bad, right? This is a church that's upside down. Sexual disorder is an epidemic. Uh, the gifts of God uh, have been, the spiritual gifts have been abused. They don't understand order. They're kind of doing it the way they want to do it. There's a lot of boasting and arrogance, and there's a lot of rivals and a lot of dissension in the church. And what Paul says very clearly, 
what you need is not more teaching, and teaching is good. Can I get an amen to that? What you need more than anything are some spiritual fathers who love you. It seems like spiritual fathering is the key, and spiritual mothering, but today we're talking about fathers, but spiritual fathering is essential for life, the abundance of life. Amen. The problem, though, as before I get to what God is like and how I relate uh, to what we're talking about right now, the problem when it comes to fathering, let me just say this really quick. Fathering is absolutely essential to the life of our families. Amen. It's a non non. It's a it's a indispensable. Say it that way. An indispensable foundational piece for health and life. The problem culturally, if I can do just some cultural things, is that we have been taught that men, or if you're masculine or whatever, in this modern age, according to one author, that we're viewed as men as not as leaders, not as servants, but as consumers, right? I'm sure you see it in, on TV, you see it uh, all the time. We're consumers of food and, and bacon. I can totally consume bacon, right? That's totally fine. Barbecue, Michelob, beer, right? We sit on the couch. We play video games. Men are kind of viewed as, and I'm just kind of doing some cultural critique, uh, as guys who stay out of the way, right? Um, men, they kind of just do their own thing. You kind of let them do their own thing. In fact, there's one channel um, on TV that depict men as bumbling goofballs all the time. I remember watching, sitting down, watching um, a couple shows with my kids when they were younger, and I was just astonished at how they uh, depicted fathers. Children were the ones who were raising or parenting the dads, because the dads were seen as idiots, as goofballs, they had no wisdom, whatever. I think it's kind of funny um, a couple times, but when it happens over and over and over, you kind of get an idea. Maybe this is how people view dads. Um, and I think many people have gone along for the ride. We've colluded with this idea that men are just going to stay out of the way. They're going to do their own thing. They're not servants. They're not leaders. They're just consumers. Um, well, we, we fundamentally reject that. Amen. Number two, um, culturally, in the words of one um, scholar, in this present darkness that we live, masculinity again, is wrapped up with fathering and even being a husband, is often wrapped up as, as winning, right? So masculinity is defined by winning, like sexual conquest. It's defined by physical domination. You gotta look like Thor. You gotta drive a G-Wagon. You gotta make seven figures, right? You have, to, you have to be a certain way. You have to have economic advantage. And we've reduced masculinity, this is a hyperized masculinity, to winning, right? If you're going to be a man, we got real man talk. We, we, you know, we use that. If you want to be a real man, you got to achieve this and you got to achieve that and whatever. Now, God has given us a built-in desire as men, I understand, to achieve things. And I'm not against winning, right? I love to win. I say this all the time. You play anything with me, just know deep down inside, I want to defeat you really bad, right? But I know how to mask that. But ultimately, we are not measured, we are not defined as men who follow Jesus by our success. 
by how much we make or what we look like or how we achieve things. We are not even defined by what we know. We are defined by how we love. This is not just a cultural problem, but this goes all the way back to, to Lamech in his prehistoric song. He boasts about all the women that he had, and then he talks about his bloodlust and vengeance. This is hyper-masculinity, right? And there are many people out there that just assume that the ultimate way to measure what it means to be a man is to have success like this, but no, the ultimate, the Bible shows us, the ultimate way to measure success is by learning how to love and give yourself away. Why? Why is then, why is number one, fatherhood so important? And then why are those two things? Like why is winning not the most important thing, right? Why, why are men not called to be con consumers? And there's no one like that in this church, right? All the other churches, they have that, but the men in this house, man, we're strong and we love, come on. Why, though? Why, why is fathering such an important thing, right? Why is actually fathering and giving yourself away more important than being successful in the eyes of our culture? Well, we find this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. This is the Lord's Prayer. We're taking the first block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew and there are five blocks of teaching in Matthew. This is the most famous block of teaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I read through this um, yesterday, and I didn't get a chance to count all the references to Father. But it's amazing how Jesus refers to God not as Star Lord, right? Not as, like, builder of the cosmos who, who flung out, like, supernovas throughout space. Jesus doesn't re uh, re reference God as, man, this feudal Lord, uh, this this cosmic, distant, faceless bureaucrat. No, Jesus refers to God as his Father. And replete throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, um, the fatherhood of God is absolutely fundamental to the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to read this really quick to you. Jesus, in Matthew 6, verse 7, says, and he's talking about prayer, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Verse 8 or 9, wherever we're at, do we have that? Yes, pray then like this, our Father. The, the literal Greek in, in Matthew's gospel is Father of us. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not star lord, not feudal lord, not warrior king, but father. Our God is our father. Not only is our God our father, but this gives us a radical picture of the cosmos. The cosmos is a household, and God is father of all. Not just the Democrats, not just the Republicans, not just the whatever, right? God is father of all. Can I get an amen to that? In verse 10, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He continues in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In fact, we go to Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus continues as he's talking about prayer. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, 
And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how, I love this. Don't you love this? Man, I love it. How much more? Man, I love this. Come on, I just, I mean, I, I really love this passage. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's the radical goodness of the Father that is underneath the entire sermon on the mount. In fact, we go to Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. We get a, a beautiful picture of who God is and how he relates to the cosmos and to the world and to people. Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And then he ends in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect or complete as your Father in heaven is complete. So your Father in heaven is a good Father. Can I get an amen? Your Father in heaven, we find this in Hosea chapter 14, we find this in Psalm chapter 68, is the one who takes care of the orphans and the fatherless, right? He's the one that settles the solitary in the family. So our Father relates to this world not as a business partner, right? He doesn't corporate flow the hierarchy of the cosmos. Your Father in heaven is a good Father that is available to you. So if you are in Christ, you are no longer a wandering orphan in a lonely cosmos. You are a son, and you are a daughter, and you are well-loved, and your Father in heaven is well-pleased in you, and he wants to protect you, and he wants to provide for you, and his grace is sufficient for you. Man, I wish we had some people in here that really believe this. Your father is radically committed to you. He's there for you. What Matthew 5 is saying, what Jesus is saying, hey, your father, man, he treats the just and the unjust, the evil and the righteous the same way. He, he lets the rain and the sun do their thing. Your father in heaven is not about annihilating people, Right? And then he says, okay, then you need to reflect that. So you must be perfect or complete as my Father in heaven is perfect and complete. So what the heck does that mean? You guys still with me this morning? What does that mean? It means, in particular, as a father, you picture, you picture this large-scale reality of how God relates to this world. So being a dad is one of the most important callings in the space-time world. It's greater than making seven figures. Can I get an amen to that? It's greater than any, any achievement that you can ever have. In fact, Paul, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, makes it very clear that fatherhood is not just a biological reality. Like, oh, I have kids. Okay, what do I do now, right? 
It's much more than a biological reality. Fatherhood is a spiritual calling. It's a spiritual calling that God gives every man. I did a little thought experiment. Uh, I looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and I decided to remove all the the father references. And I kind of came to the conclusion that a fatherless portrait of God leads to anxiety, leads to performance, a performance-driven life. It leads to extreme judgmentalism. It leads to diminished generosity. It also leads to an insatiable addiction to money, an inability to forgive, a nursing of resentment, a radical cynicism, a prayerlessness. In fact, we know through, through psychotherapy and a lot of different theological studies that your vision of God determines your prayer life. If your prayer life sucks, we all go through season where our prayer life isn't what we want it to be, right? Can I get an amen? But if it consistently is something that you do not want to engage in, it could be that your vision of God or your portrait of God is all messed up. If you think of God as some distant cosmic gas or some God, God as some like guru kind of figure or whatever you think, um, in contradistinction as God is your merciful father, prayer will be very difficult for your entire life. In fact, prayer is driven by the beautiful picture of God as your loving father. Can I get an amen? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote this about God. He's a rabbi, and he's describing the Old Testament. And he writes, the way that Bell, in his words, Bell, which means master, was connected to the idea of husbands ruling over their wives by the domination of force. But he writes, but God revealed to Hosea that he would not be called Bell by his people, but instead would be called my husband. The difference is profound. For Hosea, at the core of Bell worship, is the primitive idea that God rules the world by force. As husbands, or in my paraphrase, uh, fathers rule families in societies where power determines the structures of reality. Against this idea, Hosea paints a different possibility of a relationship between marriage partners built and even families built on love and mutual loyalty. God, in other words, is not Bel, one who rules by force. He is in the Hebrew ish. He relates to us in love, which is the very word Adam used when he first saw Eve for the very first time. God does not rule by force or by privilege or by upward mobility or by power, please hear me. God is not about telling, giving, issuing major dictums. Yes, he gave the Ten Commandments. Yes, he has shown us the way to be human. But God operates and relates with us by his merciful love. So much so that he sent his son, Jesus, to the cross. So what does it mean to be a father, right? If fatherhood is learning to be an image bearer, or to, uh, it's, it's a way of picturing who God is and how he relates to this world, um, how do we practice being 
a father. Do we, do, do, do we just teach stuff? Yes, we certainly teach stuff. Do we do things? We certainly do things. And this is where I want to end. I want to pray for our fathers. The way we practice being a father is really simple. It's not by telling people what to do, right? It's not by giving just directions to our kids. Again, this is wrapped up with even husbands. It's not telling, hey, our wife, wives, go in the kitchen and make me tacos. My wife would never listen to me, right, if I said something like that, right? Being a father is not, in other words, it's not strict patriarchy. It's not power. It's not privilege. It's not you do this for me. In fact, what we find in Ephesians chapter 5, being a husband, being a father, the definition of masculinity, according to the Bible, is all about responsibility. And that responsibility is cruciformed. Don't shout me down today. It's cross-shaped. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says this. Husbands, we can even add fathers. If you're a man, right, if you're part of men's ministry and you love eating game food and wild mountain lion. Anyways, let's move on. You have a big, long beard, right? And you grin down bears. Anyways, let's go on. And you live in Idaho and you go out and shoot your guns. Husbands, fathers, men, love your wives. We can even add your families. He talks about this in Ephesians 6. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies and their families. He who loves his wife and his kids love, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How did Jesus love us? This is a little smaller group today, not rhetorical. How did he love us? Any thoughts? I've never done this before. We're just going to do it. Come on. He gave himself up. How did he give himself up? He went to the cross. That's how much your Father in heaven loves you. And as fathers and men and as husbands, our calling, it's, it's incredible. It's a huge responsibility. It's to picture that kind of self-giving love back to our families. I, it's, it was hard. I mean, and we're going to talk. I can't wait till we get our marriage series. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. Um, it's going to be convicting. It took me about probably five or six years to figure this out because I just figured that when you're in a marriage, um, my wife and I were both firstborn, so we were, were both strong-willed. We thought, both of us thought, it was a mutual thing that marriage is about winning an argument, right? took me a long time. Still, I'm still trying to work that one out, right? It's not about winning. Marriage, family is not like your personal fulfillment project. I, I think we all know that. 
being a father is not in the, in the strict sense patriarchy where we exercise our power and our privilege. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, the Bible, if that's your definition of patriarchy, is very anti-patriarchy. The Bible is not about men telling their wives and kids, submit. Right? No. If we're going to talk about headship, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a father. It's a spiritual call to give your life up, to pour yourself out for your family, for your church. It's, it's a calling to be a servant leader. It's a calling to take care of the widows, the orphans. It's a calling to take care of those who are disenfranchised, those who are on the outside. It's a calling to give your life away, right? It's not about making all the money that you can, and if you want to make money, that's great, but that's not your high, highest calling as a follower of Jesus and as a father and as a husband, as a man. As a man, if you're a real man talk kind of guy and you like that rhetoric, let me just say it this way. You're calling as a, if you want to be a real man, right? Don't worry about growing out your beard. Don't worry about trying to teach your kids transmission stuff or whatever. The way you be a man is you learn to give your life for your family, for your church, and for the world. Again, I love winning. Man, I love it, right? I love it, I love it, I love it. But we find throughout Jesus' public ministry that he loses. He intentionally, intentionally loses. In his Johannine discourse in chapter 10, we know this. He goes, I willingly volunteer my life. As fathers, as husbands, as men, we have a responsibility to keep our vows to our wife. That's way more important than making money. We have responsibility to take care of our kids and to serve them and to love them, to do dishes, yes, come on, diapers. We have responsibility to visit and to take care of the words of one scholar, those who are poor, those who are on the outside, those who are disenfranchised. This is the Bible's definition, if you like this talk, of masculinity. This is what we're called to. And I really believe this summer, God is gonna give us as fathers as, as husbands, as men, a renewed sense of our calling. God's going to give us a fresh energy. I think he's going to give us a, a fresh picture of what it means to serve our families. I'm 43 now, so I just don't care what people think anymore. What I, you know, I just honestly, I'm just going to say, say it like it is. Dads, we have a responsibility to not win, but to serve and to love and to give our lives away. Can I get an amen to that? And I know you want that. And we have some of the best dads in the world and we're shaped by such a wonderful community of fathers. But I wanna take what we have in this church and I want, I want the people out there in our city who don't know Jesus to experience that kind of love, amen. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes.